Welcome to episode 13 of the In the Name of Service podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Barb Thompson. Here, we broadcast stories of men and women who've answered a call to serve in hopes of inspiring and catalyzing the rest of us to follow suit in our own way. Today's interview is with Dr. Donnell Barnett. Donnell is a husband, father, psychologist in the Army Reserves, mental health administrator for the state of Illinois, and the president of the Association of Black Psychologists. I hope you'll listen to Donnell's unique service story, how he moved a long way from home to become the first college graduate of his family, and how he stumbled into role after role, never forgetting to continue learning and exploring along the way. I had the fortune of meeting and living alongside Donnell during our doctoral program in psychology at Oklahoma State University. Poor Donnell was the only male in our cohort, and he always brought a sense of calm to our stormy days and joy in the midst of chaos. And don't get me started on his amazing singing voice. But anyway, Donnell has now grown into a leader in several communities and battles against the current mental health crisis. His wisdom and perspective brought me so much comfort in this conversation as he talks through how he envisions us all working together for brighter days. I hope you will heed his advice when he says to just jump into action when it comes to using your unique position in this world and that you truly do believe that you were born for a purpose, as he says. Thank you for listening. Welcome, Danelle, to the In the Name of Service podcast. It is my greatest honor and pleasure to have you on today. If you could start us off by just telling us a bit about yourself, your background, and kind of what's led you to the place you're in today. Sure. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me. I am Danelle Barnett. Uh, let's see. Uh, originally from Chicago and uh, finished high school, all of that sort of thing. Went away to college in Oklahoma, um, <laughs> undergrad at Langston University. Then it's a little bit of a change master's. from Chicago to Oklahoma. Just a, just a little <laughs> bit. You know, it was, it, it was a pivotal part of my story and my life. Oklahoma, just, uh, I got to meet you. And, you know, <laughs> you know it just a lot, of, a lot of great things happened because of that cultural and geographical shift that I don't think would have happened in the same way had I stayed in Chicago for, for college and so forth. Uh, but did the master's at University of North Texas and a doctorate at Oklahoma State University. I am a, a psychologist, a counseling psychologist by training, and uh, that has led me into a lot of different places. Uh, psychology is sort of a really sort of aligns with who I am as a person. I'm oriented towards helping people. That's kind of my personality. And if you know, if I were not a psychologist, I probably would have been a teacher or a social worker or you know something like that. Uh, that's you know just a part of how I'm built. And you you said what brought me to where I am. Yeah, so, uh, it's kind of a long story, <laughs> but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where I am I, is uh, kind of a couple of different things. I am the father of Kendall. I am the husband of LaShonda. I am the son of 
Roy and Felicia. I serve in a number of places. I am a, I consider myself to be a, a minister in the sense of serving people in the way that I believe that my faith tradition uh, calls me to, compels me to. I am the president of the Association of Black Psychologists and I serve as a uh, mental health administrator for the state of Illinois. Okay. Now, originally I was going to ask you what initially led you into the military, but now oh, I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm curious. Don't worry. We'll get to that. <laughs> I'm curious about you wanting to go into a helping profession. Like, where do you think that came from for you, that desire to help others or serve others? You know, I, I think it comes from a few different places. You know, growing up in Chicago, especially during the 80s and 90s, many of our urban cities were really reeling from the HIV epidemic, the crack epidemic, certainly a lot of violence that came from a lot of different directions, sort of institutional violence, right. community violence, you know, those sorts of things. And so that was sort of a context that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think made me a little more aware and a little more sensitive to just the struggles that people were having, just negotiating life. So that kind of had an imprint on me. I uh, very early on, like high school, uh, I was brought into a uh, a grant funded position from a community center in my neighborhood. They were at the time they were doing what's called HIV peer counselors. So like teenagers would go and talk with other teenagers about safe sex practices and, you know, cleanials like, you know, we were doing, you know, stuff like that, you know, when I was like 14. And that was just a job that just, you know, real, real small parts. I'm like, really like four hours a week, like nothing real major. But it, again, sensitized me to real struggles, real problems that people deal with. Uh, I mentioned that I am I'm a Christian and in that context my household was oriented that way in terms of, you know, food drives, clothing drives, going out to, you know, support people, that sort of thing. And it was sort of the infusion of those early experiences that really gave me a sense of responsibility beyond mm-hmm. just sort of what I do. And then, you know, my personality, you know, who 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 sort of knows? <laughs> who, who sort of knows where that comes from? But it was a collection of, uh, you know, some early experiences in life and just kind of who I am as a person that led me down the path. Now, I am a first-generation college student, and so I, I didn't really have a lot of models to say, you know, this is how you choose a major and this is how you decide on which professor to study under. Right. You know, like all of that stuff I had to figure out on my own. Right. So actually becoming a psychologist, I kind of stumbled into, mm-hmm. uh, quite frankly. But, you know, the, that was sort of the, a part of the pathway um, leading here and. Ultimately, you know, by the time I was old enough and had enough training, 
I sort of figured out how to take the helm where things weren't as haphazard or I didn't yeah. sort of, you know, wasn't stumbling my way through it. But I started to realize there was a point at which that I realized, okay, I have this foundation and now I can sort of steer it in a direction that I think is, is right for me. Yeah. And well, I guess part of that journey is steering right into the army. What mm-hmm. initially led you to serve in that capacity? Yeah, initially after my first year of college, I um, uh, went back home to Chicago and my mom was like, you know, I can't afford it Yeah, uh, for me to continue to go, to go to school. And I had already caught caught the Oklahoma bug at that point. And so, <laughs> so like literally the next day, I called the recruiter and it's like, hey, what you got? And they um, said, well, you know, we have this, you know, and, you know, this kind of job is available. So I, you know, that year, that was the summer of 98, I took off the fall semester of school, went to basic training and AIT, joined the reserves, and then went back to school in Oklahoma in that spring, that following spring, and that's how it started. And from there, you know, I you know stayed in the reserves through undergrad and through the master's degree. And by the time I got to my doctoral program, I had a break in service because I finished my initial reserve term. And I found out, you know, the country was really sort of scaling up for Afghanistan. And so a lot of recruitment for psychologists, for optometrists, for dentists, physicians. Right. Like, there was a lot of recruitment happening at that time. I found out about a program to come on to active duty. And I said, well, hey, I know something about this. I know something about the military. I was enlisted, of, of course, um, for that first eight years. But coming in as an coming back on active duty or coming on active duty as an officer and as a psychologist, you know, it was very different from my enlisted time. But, you know, I knew what was your MOS? I was an 88 Mike truck driver. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. And I went to Iraq as a truck driver in uh, 2003 during that initial term and then um, came back, finished school and, you know, started at OSU, took the program to become a uh, psychologist on active duty. And that was it that, you know, that took me through the next nine years um, after that point. Yeah. And then you deployed again to Afghanistan, right? Deployed again to Afghanistan in 2011 or 10. The years blend. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There was a lot going on. Yeah. There was a lot going on. Yes. When you think back or reflect back on your military career, what have you found to be uh, the most meaningful event or period of time? Wow. You know, one of the things that I often go back to is in Afghanistan, right? You know, we are for in, in mental health we were sort of trained in sort of traditional ways of doing that work you know you bring people into an office setting you have you know a block of time that you're going to do an intervention and you kind of do this whole elaborate treatment plan and all of that sort of thing but in, in afghanistan it was it was you know can you find 10 minutes to talk to someone outside of a bunker yeah it was right you know can you find 
you know, catch someone at the chow hall for a few and minutes, right? It, it, it was okay. more, much more human, less sterile. It was okay. being okay. sensitive to what people needed in the moment. And that shaped sort of how I thought about uh, the profession and just sort of how people interact. It shaped me in, in really critical ways. Just helped me to understand that a, a lot of what people need is someone who will listen, someone who will be supportive, someone who will help them figure out problems and struggles like they're not, you know, you may have a diagnosis, if you will, but, you know, that diagnosis doesn't define every problem that you have. Right. Right. You know, know, right. So it's it's um, that was something that something that I always come come back to especially now in my career uh, when I do much more higher level kind of administrative uh, leader leader level work I you know always try to balance that yes there's evidence base yes there is formal systems and interventions and that sort of thing but what undergirds all of that is the uh, willingness to be present with somebody mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to talk to them and to be a friend in a lot of ways, to be a wise friend. I shall, I'll say it that way. <laughs> yeah. It's earning someone's genuine trust is not a three or five step process. Yeah. 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 Can you take us through your decision to exit the military you know, just at the period of time when you did, you said it was like nine years basically later and you had some reserve time before that. So that's a big decision. You know, as most people know, like you ha- you get that 20 years and then you have mm-hmm. some kind of security after that. So can you take us through that and why you exited one form of service and into another? Yeah, well, I am back in the reserves now. So I'm, I'm still I'm still in and I'm at 23 years, something like that. Awesome. I got, I got my 20 year letter. Yay. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> um, but, you know, I, um, so it was a couple things that uh, influenced the decision. Probably the biggest reason was after, uh, so when I got to Afghanistan, I was a captain, uh, but the position that I was in was a lieutenant colonel billet. Hmm. Uh, and then from Afghanistan, I went to uh, Germany, and I had the same thing. I was a, still a captain, but in a lieutenant colonel billet. From Germany, I went to Ar- uh, Army Public Health Center, and it was the same deal. I was captain. I got promoted to major at that point, but the slot that I was in was a lieutenant colonel. And so by the time I was almost done with my term of, with that rotation at uh, in Maryland, I I was I was still an early major, uh, but the experiences that I had was above my <laughs> literally hey, great, above as my, they say, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so um, I talked with the consultant, and he said that you know the next logical job for you is like a senior lieutenant colonel job just kind of based on your career trajectory the next logical job is a a, you know mid-career late career uh late stage lieutenant colonel but there is no way i can put a major in any slots that would be available (laughs) for your job and so because i had kind of skipped over captain's level job he said you know i would have to go back and sit out a cycle to take a lower 
job so that mm. my so that my rank and my career <laughs> my career trajectory could catch up and then the following cycle I would be, you know, about ready. When I became an actual lieutenant right. then I yeah. could take an actual lieutenant colonel job. And that was not appealing to me. So that was one one factor and then, you know, I had a kid at the time. Well I still have a kid. <laughs> uh, but you know, <laughs> I, I was thinking a lot about, you know, my sons uh, growing up with family and so coming back home to to Chicago was really attractive um, mm-hmm. to kind of allow him to be along with family and then the other thing that really was really pressing on me uh, I was starting to feel a calling towards community work um, mm-hmm. at every duty station that I had been at I always you know joined a local church I had always, you know, tried to figure out some ways to plug into the local community, no matter where I was stationed. And my heart really is in community right. and work. Yeah. And so I saw those. I saw that this that is an opportunity to transition um, home to Chicago, where I could solve for all of those problems doing community work. I could, you know, you know, be around family and I had an opportunity to, you know, my career was much more at my discretion. Uh, right. You know, I didn't, you know, you know, I had more control over, you know, if I felt I was ready for a job with higher responsibility, I could go after it. And there was no, you know, and, and compete like everyone else does. So, yeah, those yeah. were some of the factors that contribute to me leaving active duty and of course i knew i could still continue in the reserves with it yeah yeah and from the many perspectives you have now like where you sit in all the communities that you're a part of what have you seen or discerned to be some of the greatest needs currently yeah well i think coming coming out of COVID. And what people are framing as the mental health crisis, I think it is part of a an awakening that people are struggling at levels that we didn't quite understand. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we understand better now than we did, say, pre-COVID. But folks are struggling with a lot of everyday kinds of things. And that, I think, more than anything, is one of the realizations that I try, you know, wake up most days thinking a lot about is how our systems really are designed for folks who have insurance. You're right. Um, Our systems are designed for folks who have access and means. Our systems are designed for folks who have the wherewithal to, you know, stop whatever it is that they're doing during the day and go and make an appointment with somebody to address whatever the issue it is. And for all of the people who don't fit into those categories, they don't have access, they don't have means, they're not insured or they're underinsured or they have grown up in a context where these kinds of supports were not available to them or to their families and so in many cases they're trying to navigate systems that they don't have a level of fluency in and consequently they go for years without support without help without access and so that problem set really fuels a lot of you know how i think about all the work that i do and everything that i'm involved Mm -hmm. in 
Mm-hmm. So uh, that may be a little bit beyond the the question that you asked, but you know that's that's sort of how I how how all of this maps out in in this brain of mine. <laughs> that is when you talk about that problem, it seems overwhelming. Like it seems too big. So I guess I'm curious now about how do you see the solutions you know, coming about or what's your vision for how to kind of move forward doing something to combat the needs that you see? Yeah. So there is a lot of, so one of the areas that I get to champion is healing circle work for many cultures around the world and throughout history. So uh, someone explained it to, explained it to me this way for every community right now and throughout history that didn't have a psychiatrist, what did they do when someone had a behavioral health problem right right for every community around the world now present day and throughout history if they didn't have a physician what did they do when someone got sick they developed their own indigenous ways of support of healing of practicing and the 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 wisdom of of realizing that hey we can do this Right. If you if you don't even if you don't know that a psychiatrist just exists, that doesn't mean that you ignore mental health problems, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> that that means you you start to think about ways to of support, and sometimes communities will say, okay, this person has this, but they are still a part of the community. That you know they're not ostracized in a way that we stigmatize a lot of mental mm-hmm. today. Right, you know, they embrace them into in community, and 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 you know, the opposite is true too, where you know, people who have had certain mental health challenges have been severely harmed in some communities, you know, before we sort of understood it the way that we do. But the but the point is, is that when you strip away all of the all of the access and all of the ways that we think about helping people, then come to a way of looking at communities of systems of how people practice and how people support one another uh, in the absence of professional help and one way that that has happened in many different cultures is healing circles is what some folks call it but it's essentially gatherings uh, when when communities come together to talk through problems, to offer support, to rely on their ways of being, their ways of believing, their ways of moving, and use that to offer principles around, principles around living. And that then helps people, eat, whether they have a mental health problem or not, it helps them to navigate the problem that they have in front of them right now. Right. Yeah. And if you help people navigate the problem that they have in front of them right now, over the course of time, people do better. They, you know, they, they, they survive and they thrive. They learn. Uh, they, they learn. And from a Christian tradition, there's a, a scripture that says, um, I, I shouldn't have called this reference because <laughs> now I'm drawing a blank on it. <laughs> That's right. None uh, of us are experts. Says, so, you know, yes, uh, in in this world there will be there will be problems, but take comfort for I have overcome the world. And the statement essentially is a calling. Part of the statement is essentially a calling to understand that there is no escaping not having problems. 
right, you know, right, right. Yeah. Disabuse yourself of that thought. <laughs> You're, you will have problems. There will be trials. There will be tribulations. And I think that in and of itself is incredibly powerful to some people. Yeah. So I'll, I'll pause there. Yeah, I love that. I think what I love about it most is that this huge problem is solved by everyday people. Mm, yeah, yes, yes. Thank you. Every It's just you every one of us. I love that. And there's no special qualifications. You can just sit with a person who's having trouble, create a relationship. And then on the day that you have trouble, <laughs> you might be able to reach back out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it is that sense of community that is, I think, is a critical, critical component, even in even in just purely American history. I, we are a lot more isolated. You know, the Surgeon General has has talked about this epidemic of loneliness. Right. Uh, the former Surgeon General has talked about this epidemic of loneliness and how that contributes to a whole range of behavioral health problems, formal behavioral health and informal behavioral health problems. We are not as communal as perhaps we were uh, even, you know, three or four generations ago. Yeah. Certainly in a in an African-American context where, Mm -hmm. you know, not too long ago, my ancestors were shut out of systems and they relied on themselves to support one another and thankfully that is a cultural tradition that has been a part of the the black experience even before america and so right you know you know so in a lot of ways that's a well it's a it's a tradition that has been around for centuries um if not longer uh coming from african traditions and so living in an american context which where you don't have access to the latest and greatest and all the resources whether you are because that you come from a uh, poor background or other cultural backgrounds or lots of communities have survived that way it's harder to do that today though Mm -hmm. Uh, because again, systems are systems take certain assumptions, uh, assumption that you have insurance, assumption that you know how to navigate the healthcare system, assumption that you are you know you have a, a certain individualism and a certain independence, or even Those have like the awareness or knowledge to show up at the right doctor's doorstep. Yeah, it's difficult. And oh, by the way, there's not enough providers mm-hmm. of a whole variety of types of providers to go around for all the problems that you know people show up if they do show up at the right doorstep at the right time how are you seeing people connect to these healing circles uh so they are done virtually um is is one of the uh is one of the ways that people connect because they're virtual the the pandemic you know obviously has pushed a lot of things into the virtual space which created opportunities to have more ways of for people to engage Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if it's a, a Zoom, a scheduled Zoom call where people, you know, they sign up, they come in, um, they get a little check in uh, and they get some support from from the community and it gives them enough to go back out there and face, face the, day. the week. Yeah. yeah. Face the day. Right. Uh, some communities are holding, you know, these kinds of meetings uh, where, you know, uh, healing circles is sort of 
one name to use, but the principle of having community space for, to hold conversations and to hold support for folks is a you know happens in a lot of different ways in faith communities, in certain cultural contexts. A lot of times, people you know. For, for a lot of folks who go to barbershops, right? You know, yeah. barbershops have been, a, have been a place for community conversation. You know, you wouldn't call it mental health. You wouldn't call it, you know, I'm yeah. going to my support group at the barbershop, right? You, you wouldn't <laughs> call it that. But in a lot of ways, uh, these spaces are, are used in that way. And people get, you know, they get to, you know, they get to allow other people to pour back into their cup. Yeah. And yeah. that sustains them for a little bit more. And I don't, I don't and, and I don't mean that to minimize uh, depression, anxiety. Of suicide. course. Like, right. I don't mean PTSD. I, you know, that's not to minimize that. But it is to say that even folks with those level of clin- with that level of clinical problems, they still have everyday problems too right of kids and jobs and relationships and you know all those things happen to everyone and so we all could benefit from being more person and community centered right yes i mean hearing you kind of how you've discerned the problems that we're talking about kind of big big problems and small problems too. And being a leader in different contexts and different communities, whenever you're discouraged, like what, what do you go to? What keeps you motivated to continue to serve, to continue to try to tackle some of these bigger issues? I still feel like I think a lot about calling and purpose and I, you know, I still consider myself as one who is learning what to do and be trying to unpack what it is that, you know, why am I, why am I here and how am I uniquely positioned to do only what Donnell has been called to do? Mm -hmm. Uh, That helps me to keep going, to keep exploring, to keep understanding and to keep trying. And and appreciating that, you know, you may never get it right. You may never have the magic sauce. Right. You know, and some people do find like this great big thing that changes the world or changes community. Right. You know, some people do stumble into those those things. I don't see myself as as someone who is going to, you know, you know, before Donnell and after Donnell, right? You know, <laughs> you know, there's no there's no BC, you know, BD. Um, uh, you know, I don't see I don't see myself in that way, but I do see that there is uh, something that is unique to me, and if I can keep learning what that is and keep trying to do that. That tells me that every morning I can wake up with a degree of purpose and get after it. What counsel would you have for the person listening who feels a conviction or a call to serve or, you know, do something, take some kind of action, but doesn't know where or how to get started? Get started somewhere that, like I said, I a lot of this I stumbled into. Right. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm very clear about that. And so if it's a homeless shelter or a food pantry or a women's shelter or a march 
a movement, go and do that, whatever it is. And what you'll find is people who are also trying to figure it out. Yeah. And in conversation with those people who are also trying to figure out, you learn about new opportunities. You learn about other things. You learn about other ways of serving. And over the course of just trying things out, something will strike a chord in you because people, everyone needs to understand you were uniquely created and designed for purpose. Everyone has purpose and and a unique contribution. And the process of exploring what that is helps to helps to give you a kind of focus and makes you better at whatever it is you ultimately end up doing because now you become aware of all these other ways in which that your purpose connects with other people's issues and other people's struggles. And so, you know, I, I encourage people to just jump in somewhere. It could be random, but jump in somewhere and get back up the next day and jump in and then just continue to jump in. And it is my belief firmly that your your uniqueness will find you and you'll know when you have have gotten to what it is. Yeah, that's so encouraging because it's easy to look at just honestly someone like you who looks kind of like you're at, you know, the top of your game and you kind of always knew what you wanted to do. But to hear that, that you don't have it figured out yet, you're still exploring Mm -hmm. and that even so the positions that you're in, you've it's just taken a lifetime of stumbling from one thing to the next and just being reflective and learning along the way. So awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And remember to have fun, you know, remember to (laughs) take time off to go do a water slide or, you know, wish your kids for two. I, you know, there was a, Probably five years ago, I could race my son halfway down the block. Now I can race him about four or five houses. And that's about, yeah. <laughs> See you that's later. about all he's going to get to me. <laughs> right? You know, you, you got to have fun, too. And so, you know, balancing those things, I think you'll find you'll find the life, the journey for life much more fulfilling and much more meaningful. And oh, by the way, it has a way of inoculating for your own mental health as well. Mm, yes, yes. Giving, giving back, serving um, has has a way. Uh, inoculation is probably not the best word, but uh, it has a way of putting off a lot of uh, your own stresses and pressures and worries by giving you perspective by giving you meaning by giving purpose it is it serving is selfish in that way right right well okay i've taken up enough of your time on vacation so i'm going to end it there but i just want to thank you again for your time i want to thank you for every role that you've served in and just your humility and willingness your courage to continue to tackle the problems that you see in front of you. Thank you. Thank you. I am honored to be a part of this and I'm glad to be a part of your purpose and your calling for what you're doing with this podcast.